He remembered longingly those summer days when neighbors would sit on their porches and rock in their chairs and reminisce about the old days, and fireflies would rise and wink in time or not with the porch swings swinging lazily. James Agee wrote of Knoxville, Tennessee, where he was born, remembering his family in and through these writings. Writings like Knoxville, Summer of 1915. And in Samuel Barber's musical setting of A.G.'s words, he created a lullaby-like rhythmic theme, simple and folk-like, evoking the world of childhood as remembered by a grown-up. And Benedict Taylor, in an essay on Samuel Barber, suggests Knoxville summer of 1915 speaks to us because Barber's aesthetic of music as expression and communication, not aimed at a musical elite or snobbish radical intelligentsia, but to anyone who would listen. And in so doing, he succeeded in creating a work which is spoken to many as the embodiment of an American childhood. That's an important observation for us as we prepare for a conversation with a vocalist who is passionate about this piece. Taylor speaks of the composer's understanding of music as expression and communication. And as we'll learn, that is what young Madison Zahorsky came to understand in her childhood, wise beyond her years, perhaps. In fact, she will begin our conversation with that belief from her early years and close with that belief, powerfully held to this day. Soprano Madison Zahorsky is a native of northeastern Pennsylvania, a recent graduate of the Manus School of Music in New York, where she received a master's degree, and of Westminster Choir College, where she received her bachelor's degree. She is a soloist at St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Wayne, Pennsylvania. She's established a teaching studio to work with students to bolster their vocal progress, to help with music theory and history and audition preparation. Madison will make her professional opera debut in August. And this Sunday, July 10th, she will present a recital at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Scranton titled The Nine Greek Definitions of Love, including Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915. Madison Zahorsky returned to the WVIA studios where she, as a winner in the Bloomsburg University Young Artist Competition, was recorded for broadcast some years ago. We had a chance to speak with Madison about her life in music from her childhood here in our region. I started singing very young in the area church. One in Scranton, one in Troop, and just spending as much time as I could on as many hymns, wishing there was just one more verse, just one more. 
And my parents caught on very early that I was artistically minded. So I was put into every choir we could find, every summer program we could find. And it was a very natural progression, really. And was there a moment for you that it was, this is what I do, this is Madison, this is who I am. This is really important to me, and I think I want to keep this up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I kind of knew from the start, some of my earliest memories are of singing, and I loved the level of communication that it could get me. So often as a child, no adult would listen to me. But as soon as I started singing, especially when it started getting better, suddenly they started listening and I found that, wow, this is a means of communication that is untapped in so many ways. And I just, I have to tap it. And what about people who did have training when they heard young Madison they got the sense that you had an instrument. It wasn't just that you loved to sing, because that's not always the same thing. Very true. At first, I had some mixed reviews. I had a lot of teachers and mentors that were very encouraging and knew that I had an instrument that would grow. But since I started so young in that eight, nine range, I also had a lot of very trusted individuals who told me, maybe back off. This might not be perfect for you. And it was that negative viewpoint that actually made me go, huh, this isn't just a talent, it's a skill. And if it's a skill, I have to work on it. You loved hymns. Did you love musical theater? Were you doing musical theater in high school? Was that Surprisingly enough, no, which is shocking. I didn't do a lot of musical theater, although I enjoyed it as an art form. It wasn't the style I was going for, and it wasn't a style that I sang very well. So I actually started with opera at 11 years old. Now tell us how that connection was made at 11. Absolutely. So I was in a choir that had been asked to be a children's chorus for an opera. Unfortunately, the choir couldn't do it, but I was going to do it. So I immediately went over to a rehearsal that I had no business being in. And my mother asked very kindly if I could sit in and watch and learn something. And the amazing director said, nah, get up there. And suddenly I was in this wonderful opera as part of the chorus and just, you know, having the time of my life. What was it? It was Porgy and Bess. And it was, especially as a young girl, I had no idea really but all of my fellow castmates were black and it was a wonderful experience to really look at all of the different ways that opera can be made and all of the different ways I could be a part of it even if they were a bit non-traditional. And from instrumentalists to vocalists people who are musical say that when they are performing whatever it is in the midst of a well-developed ensemble that you rise to the level and there's something that you hear that you might not learn any other way. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. From that time and really in the next few years, I discovered that even though my knowledge of music was still at that younger level, my feeling for music had grown to such a high level. I felt like I could predict what was going to happen next. And so much of my learning was auditory. I couldn't quite read music at 11. I was working on it, but not quite yet. So I developed these skills of listening, listening harder than I sang, which has stuck with me to this very day and hopefully will stick with me forever. 
Did you discover the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts? I did, yes. I remember seeing so many of them over at Cinemark and Music. My first one was Madama Butterfly, and what a great one to start with. But I would beg my mother, especially over the summers, to get in on as many of them as I could. And now I go to the Met every single year, two or three times, if not more, sit in my little box with my little score and keep track, make my notes. It just... You have to take that inspiration, especially since it's so nearby. When you listen yourself, and you said you learned from listening, there have been different styles of singing opera over the years that the early singers were not perhaps trained like they are today. Have you taken things from early sopranos, for example? And Yes, and- absolutely. I Especially because so many teachers in opera are, you know, a little bit older, or opera singers themselves, I have taken a lot of lessons from those who came before. Some of my favorite singers, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, just really resonate with me. And she had such a almost verismo style of singing, regardless of the genre of the opera she was singing. And so many singers today take a little bit more of a formal approach, a little bit more historically based And I try to find a good medium. I definitely want to let my voice be my voice. Be inspired, but not boxed in. It's not a contradiction in terms. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it took a long time to learn which of my opinions could be used in my training and what facts I had to incorporate as well. As much as we might like to sound like somebody else or use their technique, we all have different bodies. And learning to trust some of my instincts and create new ones was pivotal in everything I needed to do as in my training. And it continues in my training. Now, you pursued a particular path in terms of institutions. And Westminster, was there something particular that drew you to Westminster? Absolutely. I wanted to go to Westminster for many reasons. The top ones being, first of all, the emphasis on choral singing. Learning to sing with a group was fundamental in my beginning, and I wanted it to be fundamental in my journey. So I definitely wanted that ensemble aspect. It was also a traditional school that had some sacred music elements and that dealt with a lot of just tradition, that wonderful history that we could learn from our past. And I knew I wanted that to be a part of my education. So I was really going for that aspect when I went to Westminster. And we see in the course of your website and reading about your interests that piano is something that you pursue, right? Yes, yes. So what point did that come along because you needed to go through scores and learn them? Yeah, yes. I needed piano skills to be able to understand music, which, again, my parents caught on faster than I and put me in piano lessons nice and early. So I continued them, had a lot of blockages. Piano didn't come as easy as the voice. But once I really got into my studies in college, I recognized how necessary it was. It is entirely possible to learn a piece of music without any piano skills, but it is harder and it is way more expensive. I'd rather pay a coach or a teacher to mentor me on parts of my voice, on phrasing, on ideas, than on notes and rhythms. So I learned piano more for myself than anyone. 
And where did your interest in conducting come from? Yes, well, I, I really believe in being a rounded musician. So I spent so much time looking at a baton, I wanted to know what was actually going on. So I started a conducting internship with the Children's Chorus of Sussex County while I was in high school under just some amazing musicians and directors. And I found that there was so much happening that I hadn't known as a singer, but I felt instinctually. So I wanted to take that instinct and put it into knowledge. Do you still when you have a chance? Absolutely. Yes. I love to conduct. I love to be parts of ensembles. All of my friends know that if you're willing to sing, Madison's going to rope you into it and we're going to take a look at something, especially small ensembles, a quartet, an octet, so you can really feel the music together. So I love to conduct just as much as I enjoy singing. Westminster, where did Manus come about? Yes, it's quite a jump. It's quite a jump. So I finished my degree at Westminster in three years instead of the regular four. I wanted to take a little bit of time after my undergraduate to decide what I wanted. And I discovered two things about myself. First of all, that I felt that I definitely needed a bit more time in formal education before I was ready to go out. I felt like my voice was a bit inconsistent. And second of all, I was really heavy on the traditional and I didn't have a lot of experience or knowledge in the modern. So I was looking for an institution that was reputable, but still had that contemporary side. And Manus was the perfect fit. It really pushed me into contemporary work, modern work, and more importantly, collaborative work. At what point are you then? Have you finished? I have. I just finished this past May, so it's still through the bloodstream. I'm so excited to have my master's degree. It seems so unreal. And I am currently about to go out into the world. I almost have. And I'm making my operatic debut in August. Well, tell us the particulars. Yes. So I was hired by Teatro Graticello out of New York City. And I will be performing Donna Anna from Mozart's Don Giovanni in the Phoenicia Festival of the Voice in Phoenicia, New York. Tell us how remarkable Mozart is for a singer. Mozart is everything you could imagine a composer to be. He was somebody who took into account the singer, the orchestra, and the story. So many composers have two, but very few have all three. And Mozart really worked that story aspect in. Every line is comical or tragic or funny or, you know, a shock. It really mirrors what you need to do as a character. So singing Mozart is very natural in terms of the character development. It's very challenging in terms of the voice, simply because Mozart was really thinking about that story. He was thinking about programmatic music. So you have to rise to that challenge and really let the character take over. Talk to us then about how you are approaching getting to know her. Yes, Donna Anna is certainly a complex and evasive character when you think about it. She's been through several traumatic events and is struggling to understand her circumstances, struggling for her version of revenge, and struggling to move on. So for me, it was all about finding that struggle. Where in the music does she go with the flow? And where in the music does she fight against it? Where does she change her mind? Where does she interrupt people? So I really came at it from the text. 
starting with the text, thinking about what she's saying and why. And then after that, I looked at the music. Does it match what she's saying? Or is she perhaps lying? Is there some subtext? And that was such a launching point that the character really fell into place after that. What theatrical training have you had? Well, my theatrical training has been mainly private work. I had a few classes in my formal training that were invaluable, but most of my studies were with Miss Nova Thomas, who's currently at Rice University in Texas. And she really pushed me to stop thinking about acting and start thinking about reacting. So I follow the trainings of Uta Hagen, and I just really appreciate her approach and how literal it is. It's so concrete. She has so many exercises that are do this, pay attention to this. And as a literal thinker myself, that was very helpful. What about languages then? You have a facility for language because you have an ear for music? Well, strangely enough, my speaking language skills are okay. I, I know a bit of German. I'm conversational. But that's about it. English and German are where I draw the line. However, my diction and my understanding of languages goes far beyond that because of my formal training. So I can speak so many languages, even if I don't understand every word or, more importantly, the grammar. What about being abroad? Have you spent time? Of- I have, yes. So about four years ago, I went to the Bassi Brugnatelli Symposium in Robiate, Italy, and it was delightful. I spent some time there about three weeks working in lessons, coachings, and doing a few scenes. A little bit of Verdi, who could blame me? And I have also traveled to England. I've traveled to Austria, Hungary, uh, Czechoslovakia, a bit of Germany, just to witness the culture, the opera, and the lifestyles there, especially as places where so many of these amazing compositions are from and have inspired. You got to be there. Now, we're speaking because you're about to present an intriguing program on July 10th at St. Luke's, and we are curious about the title and how you decided to bring us such an intriguing classically-based recital. Yes, so this recital, The Nine Greek Definitions of Love, is the culmination of my master's degree. I did present it in New York City as my graduate recital. So in many ways, this is my thesis. A lot of research, dedication, and love have gone into this program. So it's based on these nine definitions, and it really investigates some of the ideas of love, how we think of love, how we approach love, and of course, how music interacts with love. We might think of the concept of Eros or the goddess Aphrodite. What are some of the ways they thought of love? Yes, well, they thought of love as coming from many places. And if you wanted to love and be loved, you couldn't pick just one. You had to have them come and you had to give them in many forms. So some of the more intriguing versions that I wasn't aware of was ludus, flirtation. It was important to flirt, you know, and not necessarily just with your spouse. It was a part of everyday life. We're all pretty familiar with philia, love for family. But then there's something like meraki, which is love of work, love of your job, and enjoying what you contribute to society. Things like storge, built love, and pragma, commitment. So all of these different facets 
that I just, they were so shocking to me to think that, okay, I, I can't just love my family. I can't just love my partner. There's other things in life that contribute to fulfillment. And so you then set about finding songs that would reflect some of those aspects of love. Absolutely, yes. Looking at what I wanted to present, I knew one or two pieces that I definitely wanted to present that were close and near and dear to my heart. And as soon as I started to look into and research this topic, they fit right into place. I mean, Knoxville, Summer of 1915 by Barber is just a seminal piece of his work. It is shocking and delightful and youthful and aged. It's everything it could be, but it fits so perfectly into love of family. So that worked perfectly. What rises to the top when you say Samuel Barber? When I think of Barber, I think of realism. I think of Americana in many ways because he really brought out some of those pastoral sounds and some of those just real sounds. In this piece, for example, I can really hear the cars going by. I can really hear the flyer flies just going crazy. And I feel as though I'm enveloped in the world sonically, which is something that is so, so barber. And so you're not just telling us about the fireflies. I'm hearing them in real time with you. And something that I love about my presentation of this piece is I'm not singing it. I'm living it. Where do you position this in the recital? It is the ending of the first half. I figured after something so grand, we might all need a break. But it really rounds out the first half of the program with something so extreme, but something that we can all really empathize with. Now, what about something completely different? The flirting. Yes, the flirting. Well, I'm doing Le Colibri by Chausson, which is a kind of off the beaten track French piece. And it details this person really trying to get their point across to the other person. So they are making a huge metaphor, you know, like a bird coming from the sky, sipping a flower. He never knows how much he could have drunk. And if only I could kiss you one more time. So French. So delightfully French. And do you love singing in French? I do love singing in French. It's so unusual. As an English speaker, we have a very different cadence of speaking than the French do. It is a romantic language. But more than that, I find that it's a very physical language. I can really feel the French thoughts. I can feel how they would use a phrase to get across an opinion, or more importantly, a bit of a flirt. Is there a German piece on your program? There are quite a few. So I have a total of six. Um, one is Schubert's On die Musik, which is delightful. But the other five are a set by Wagner commonly known as the Wesendonklieder, um, officially called Fünf Gedichte Frau Ein Frauenstimme. But it's a glorious set of five songs that he used as a basis for his opera Tristan und Isolde. Now, you were good enough to send us a file of a, a performance that you did. Yes. And I got a translation of Dreams. How would you approach that poetic text and work with the music like you did explain with Mozart. So unlike the Mozart, I didn't actually start with the text for this one. I started with the music very much as Wagner is known to do. 
And I just listened to the orchestra without any singer to get a feeling for what he was thinking. And then I listened to this beautiful melody that comes on top of it and how haunting and nostalgic it was. So coming into this piece, I had to start from the bottom up. And from there, there was the challenge with all Wagner pieces of making it work, of getting through those magnificent phrases, of finding how my voice could possibly fit in such magnanimous writing. But then, once I did have my voice into it, all I had to do were say these words, because they are entirely themselves. Say what wondrous dreams are these, embracing all my senses, that they have not like bubbles vanished to a barren void. I mean, it really speaks for itself. What's the different rhythm and contrast between and among the Weisendonk leader? They are completely different from each other. Although the piece was set together, the text were created by the poet Mathilde Weisendonk, who was the wife of one of Wagner's patrons. And of course, unfortunately, they fell desperately in love with one another. But being the two reasonable and sensible adults that they were, they never consummated that love and instead exchanged some wonderful poetry and letters, and these poems were among them. So although they are a set, being from the same poet, they vary very much in terms of content. How appropriate then that they should be on your love program. Yes. Where do the Weisendonk leader fit then? Yes, the Weisendonk start the second half of the program. So it really kind of balances both halves. We end with something that's so familial, and then we come into something that is so obsessed. How are you ending the whole concert? Yes, I am ending the concert with two theatrical pieces. Especially now, I wanted to make sure that it was a well-rounded program. So first, I have Stay I Pray You from Anastasia, which is actually going to be a tribute to those in Ukraine. This piece really delves into how hard it is to leave a homeland even under such uncertain circumstances. So that's my dedication to them and bringing their plight into the artistic sphere. After that, I have to build a home from the bridges of Madison County, which really is just about building and about creating. And I hope that I can inspire everyone else to start creating as well. On our way to sit down in the studio, Madison, we talked about the upheaval of COVID, and you just alluded to, as we know, the frightening situation in Ukraine. What do you think, as someone for whom it's natural, music is a part of you and your life, why is it important for us as a society, as a culture, particularly at this time, why do we need to come and hear you in concerts and live music and so forth? I truly believe that music may not be universal. Not everyone reacts to music the same, but it is a way for us to empathize with each other. And music, and all art really, is a way for us to start a conversation. Music is a medium, just as my singing is a medium, or sculpture is a medium through which to decorate. And we need to bring attention to what's going on in our society, but we also need to pay attention to ourselves and our needs and our joys and our delights. And I think by marrying the two, and by being a part of the artistic community, whatever way you want to, really helps us be more communicated as a human family and just to each other. All the time of evening, when people...
Soprano Madison Zahorsky from northeastern Pennsylvania speaking with us about her life in music. This Sunday, July 10th, she will present a recital at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Scranton titled Nine Greek Definitions of Love. The program will include, as we heard, Chausson, Samuel Barber, Wagner, Schubert, and more. The church is located at 233 Wyoming Avenue in downtown Scranton. Madison has her own website, and that is madisonsohorsky.com, and it's Madison, M-A-D-I-S-O-N, Sohorsky, Z-A-H-O-R-S-K-Y, madisonsohorsky.com. She will make her operatic debut as a professional as Donna Anna in Mozart's Don Giovanni this August, and you can learn more on Facebook as well. For more information, madisonzahorsky.com. It is a program titled Nine Greek Definitions of Love this Sunday, July 10th at 3 in the afternoon at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, 233 Wyoming Avenue in downtown Scranton. Again, it is madisonzahorsky.com. <laughs> 